And this is what makes me a pastor. See, I mean, my theology is really sound. My body just sucks. <laughs> I feel that on a deep spiritual level. <laughs> One, two, five, nine. Prophet, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? So let's talk disability theology, because I think we're so often we're taught uh Eurocentric male theology as the theology and then disability theology as another thing. And so I don't I don't want to kind of siphon it off, but I do know that disabled people speaking about theology from their perspective is really enlightening. So you don't have to give us a crash course, but can you tell us some of the thinkers that have really influenced you? Can you tell us um, how how disability theology might help us um, be better and more justice-seeking people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from there, we can go on to practical things like mm-hmm. virtual church and, and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But can you give us some kind of like good foundation stuff to start off with? Really, primarily from disability theology is like Nancy Iceland or Eastland. I'm mm-hmm. never really sure how to pronounce her last name. She's since passed. She was a professor at Emory, but she wrote a book called The Disabled God, came out in like 93, 94. It's a little older. It's a little dated, but it, you know, it came out right around the time that I was working through my theology and it's the disabled God, a liberatory theology of disability because I'm all about liberation theology. So from a disability perspective, that was the big, the big book. And there's been others since, but to me, like she really laid the groundwork of, of, disability and justice and inclusion, making the argument that salvation is grounded in Jesus' disability. Jesus' body was broken, right? So like Mm -hmm. if his body's broken and that represents Jesus because, you know, those, those scars and everything are still there. Like, you know what I mean? Put your, put your fingers in, you know, in my hands and all that, you know what I mean? Like that's still there. And so if it's representative of Jesus, it's representative of of everybody, including, or maybe even especially people with disabilities. Okay. I, that, I had never thought about it that way. So I'm fitting that into my mental structures. So let me ask a question that I think is, is a thorny theological question and hear your take on it. Because we talk about, there's so much healing that Jesus does in the gospels of physical ailments um, and we talk about heaven or or the world to come or the reign of God as this mm-hmm. place where like there's no more pain. Mm-hmm. How do how do you reconcile? How do how do disability scholars that you have read, theologians that you've read, reconcile mm-hmm. people who are are disabled people? You know that disability first. Mm-hmm. In light of all of these these healing narratives, how does the that healing, fit together? I'll tell you, the healing narratives is never really about healing. It's about restoration. It's about bringing people back into the circle. People are on the outside and Jesus brings them back in, into the into the inside. The the man born blind in John John 9, right? Like where and that's a hilarious story to me. But you got to read it all the way through. It's like 41 verses as Blood. we broke it down, but but it you got but like he comes along you know, Jesus heals them, you know, and people say, well, how is it, you know, nobody's who sinned, nobody sinned, 
but he was born blind that the glory of God might be seen through him, blah, 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 right? But that's inclusion because if you continue reading the story, like they take him to the Pharisees, the Pharisees want to know, like, who is this guy? And he says, and how did you get healed? And he says, I don't know, this guy healed me, you know? And and so then they send for his parents because they don't want to believe that it can be just that easy, right? And they send for his parents. They say they don't want to get in trouble. So they say, like, well, he's of age, ask him, you know? So they go back to him. Well, how did you get healed? And he says, well, the guy put mud on my eyes, and which is in itself pretty funny, spits in the mud and rubs it on his eyes, if you know, and, 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 or spits in the dirt, makes mud and rubs it on his eyes. So he says he did it. And they say, they, they argue with him a little bit. And ultimately they throw him out. Right. Like first, like when he questions him, when he says, what, do you want to become his disciples too? And that's when they say, all right, that's when they say, all right, get out. Right. So again, it's not about visual healing in that case. It's about inclusion, right? You know, the man at the at the gate, you know, beautiful, right? Like, you know, silver or gold I don't have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus, get up and walk, right? But it's so we can go back inside the community. Like, if I see one more picture of the kid flying away from his wheelchair, you know, on the tombstone, like, you know, I, I may, like, punch somebody. But, you know, at the same time, I guess I'm going to backpedal a little bit because if it helps people in their time of need get through the fact that their kid died, then mm-hmm. great, right? Like, you know, but but at the same time, that is a theology that, like, you know, will like disability will go away in heaven, you know, or something. I don't, I don't buy that because then it's exclusionary. It's not, it's not about that. What I always say when it comes to afterlife, however that exists, and I'm not sure how that exists, like the, the more, the deeper I dig, the more questions I have. Right. So I'm not going to say, Oh, I'll go up there and it'll be this great thing. I, I kind of joke sometimes that, you know, I'll play basketball with Jesus and he'll let me win. Cause like, of course Jesus <laughs> would win like all the time. And I, I just wonder, does he wear, still wear sandals or would he wear like Jordans or something like that, you know, hmm. on the court. Right. And I don't know. I, I would think you'd wear Jordans cause you're playing basketball, but you know, and which pair, but be that as it may, like what I say about the afterlife, however it exists is that it won't matter. Like, just like it shouldn't matter now, just like I, just like my wheelchair, if everything had a ramp, it wouldn't matter how I get in, how I access the same thing in heaven. I'll move, but it won't matter whether I'm rolling or walking or whatever, because it'll be inclusion. Mm-hmm. Chris, a, a little bit ago in the first episode, in the original episode we recorded, you had made a comment about stairs in heaven. Mm -hmm. And since you made that comment, the only thing I could think of is how we as a culture are so, you know, kind of poorly formed uh, in our thinking or surrounding disabled folks that the, that when able-bodied people imagine heaven, 
we're still taking the stairs. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> it sounds, it sounds kind Thanks of, a lot, Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Well, right. It's, right. I guess it is Zeppelin's fault, but like, uh, it, it's fascinating that, um, in many ways, this is a, uh, you know, such a failure of imagination as, as we, we envision like when, when me as an able-bodied person in, you know, my imagination is, has shrunk. It's, it's unable to sort of imagine, a, 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 a an eternity or, or an abundant life in eternity that that doesn't also include my being able to use my body the way I've always used it but when, when really perhaps a, a richer imagination would be one in which those um, those boundaries that that you know are brought up between, able-bodied people or disabled folks or, or really any boundary, those boundaries should become porous and strange and slippery and, 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 or, or at the very, you know, at the very least, um, if not outright gone. Um, but instead, no, it's paradise with God and I'm still taking the stairs. <laughs> like I'm still, it seems like, it, a, you know, it seems like a poor use of energy. And then, and then yeah, you'll be like, yeah. and then you'll be like, this is the bad place. Um, anyway, <laughs> um, it is interesting, but it's. It, I think. I think that's something. I that you know, disabled theology. Um, in my limited experience with it, I haven't read a ton of it, but like in my limited experience, it seems to me, and and maybe you can confirm this. I think you already have that disabled theology has has a really interesting ability to reveal in in um perhaps non-disabled folks or just folks who aren't paying very close attention um reveal the way in which you know ableism impacts Mm. all of our imaginations you know and for sure and the way in which we not only envision a more just world but then even go on to envision what might it mean to be restored, right? Like, like mm-hmm. that's, I think, the thorniness of Joe's question that she identifies as a thorny theological question. We have these, you know, the, what, what would it mean to be, what would it mean for uh, a person who is disabled, who understands themselves as disabled, who, who knows that their, their meanness has been crafted because we all live in our own bodies, like has been, has been created and made through their disabled body. And that, that doesn't mean they're not beautifully and wonderfully made. It means that Mm -hmm. that's, that's Mm -hmm. who they are. Like how it's, it's fascinating, you know, to be confronted with that and then like reflect further on um, the way in which our, perhaps my imagination is diminished when I read these, stories of healing right Mm -hmm. like for a person who is like that it might not be good news at all no for sure you know think about think about all the times in church where we see uh, people pray and i i believe in the power of unifying love i so i pray too but -hmm. think about when we jump up and celebrate a healing on a sunday morning anybody have any joys or concerns and they'll say it's a great joy for me that that somebody recovered from COVID. What about all the people who didn't? You mm. know, like, what does that say in your celebration 
to all the people who didn't recover? Is there is there faith too weak? I had somebody tell me that they didn't, this is me as a pastor. And this is me as like after, like as a disabled pastor. And I had somebody tell me, I don't know about you, but I believe in the power of prayer. I'm going to pray that you'll be able to walk so that you can be in ministry. Yeah. And I wanted to punch them. I didn't. But, you know, sitting there while they prayed because it wasn't worth my energy to try to explain to them in that moment how bad their theology is, you mm-hmm. know, um, was really uncomfortable. And I rolled away and thought, there goes that relationship, you know, you know, and that's also bad because like, we don't want to break relationship. You want to stay in relationship because that's the only way that's ultimately in the podcast, in the previous conversation, you asked why I stay in church Mm -hmm. because the only way that I'm going to heal the church is to be in the church. I mean, Mm -hmm. I do a lot of things outside the church too. And in some, some ways, I'll be in the church, but not in a position of power that reinforces all the things that they do. I find benefit in that. But the minute I roll away from the church and say, okay, I'm done. And sometimes you need to do that. I'm not going to discount that either. But, but the minute I do that is the minute that I can't use my voice anymore to restore the community. So to answer your question, Ethan, it's really for me, Going back to what I said, it's almost it's almost like, meaning that it is like, the restoration or the brokenness isn't bodily brokenness at all, but a brokenness that keeps of separation, a brokenness of the things that keep us separated. Now, to your point about heaven and your imagination and stuff, I mean, your experience is your experience. You, you only know what you know, right? Sure. And you know what you encounter, which is why it's so important to be in relationship. Like when I meet you or when you meet me or when I met Bernice or whomever, you know, that makes a difference because then you think, well, you know, I know Chris and I love Chris and I want to see him included. So I have to make sure that spaces are inclusive for him or, you know, Bernice, my friend who I mentioned is black and I grew up in a really racist part of town that is even more racist now, if possible, than they were then. And I don't have any of my growing up friends anymore because I had to sever those relationships because of the racism, because I couldn't hear the things that they would say without thinking, what if Bernice heard this? Hmm. You know, what I love Bernice. And if I love Bernice, I can't tolerate racism. And it moved me from being not racist to anti-racist, just like a relationship with me hopefully means that people will move from not ableist as much as they're able to anti-ableist, you know, Mm -hmm. to, to calling out the places where we are excluding people. So I don't know if your heaven will have stairs. I mean, Maybe you see it as you see it. I already referenced the good place once 
So maybe this is insider for the people who have also seen The Good Place, but you know how I think uh, uh, Ted Danson, Michael says, you know, mm-hmm. people people here, or maybe it was the Janet says, you know, says people hear how they hear in their native tongue. You speak how you speak, they speak how they speak, and you just hear it in the way that it makes sense for you. Maybe mm. heaven's like that too. So maybe you see stairs and I see a ramp, you know, and maybe that's okay, you know. And and as I said, when I first was talking about how I envision it, is that I believe it, it just won't matter. And that's not to say that we're homogenous. I think, I think that's, that's troubling too when people try to erase disability or gender or orientation or race or any of the things that we try to erase and say, well, we're all, all lives matter, which of course they don't, right? Not equally, not equitable, equitably. So we need to work toward that too. But we don't, we don't become all the same, but our differences, the walls that keep us separated of our differences, those walls get lower. And that's how I envision whatever the afterlife would look like. Yeah. It's not like our particularities go away. It's that we retain our particularities. We're not, we're not reshaped in the idea of some Ubermensch, right? Like we are not all remade into a, a white man who is perfectly abled, right? We are who we are still. And it's just that the things that stop us from being fully who we are, are removed. Right. I, I like that a lot. I, I think there's, I think you can work with that. Yeah. Because right. that gives us a vision for what this world should look like, as you've said. Right. That, and that's exactly it. Because what's, what's my job on earth as it is in heaven? Go and do likewise. Like, mm. like my job right now, I don't know what the afterlife, afterlife looks like. You know, I, 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 I'd like to think what I think it looks like based on what I've read and, and what I've thought about, you know, and it's all the things we've talked about. But my job here is to make the world a more inclusive place. Yeah. Well, I think of that, especially in light of COVID and long COVID and this being a mass disabling event, like the work that you are already doing to make sure you're included is going to benefit so many other people who don't even know that they're going to need to do this work yet. Um, So we had talked some before we started recording about online spaces, about virtual church. Mm -hmm. And the way that that is helping disabled people be included in community, about how we all know that's going to go away as the as the pandemic continues to change and shift, and people get tired of it. Uh, so, can how tell me your thinking on virtual church, virtual communion, virtual communities uh, in the light of of being a disabled person and thinking with the lens of disability theology? Well, I had the idea for virtual church before the pandemic. I actually went and proposed an idea for virtual church and it wasn't understood. Maybe it wasn't as fully fleshed out as it needed to be. I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus or anything like that because the person who I went to has really helped me a lot. But but I have, because there are always going to be people who either can't or won't 
come into a church. And for me, it's the won't that's even more driving. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it's my friend, Arthur, it's all the people in the community who kind of joke half-heartedly that, you know, if I went into the church, the walls would fall down and they're joking, but they're kind of not. And there's that Mm -hmm. like sadness there too, because they actually believe that, you know, that they're not good enough to be there because that's what they're saying, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so I had that idea. So I don't think it'll go away because I've seen too many people do things both apart from COVID related things and otherwise that, that bring people together into community. Now, do I think a lot of people are going to kind of leave it to the side because life is busy, right? And that's part of it too. And then So you get busy and you say, oh, well, I'll get back to that, but we're not going to do. And people want to be in person, but we're Mm -hmm. still in the middle of a pandemic. And you should and people I wish more people would reconcile that because that's that's the logic like right now. Right. Like we don't all have to wear masks, make your like protect yourself. Right. But I can't protect myself as well wearing the mask on my own. I mean, that's just science. Right. Like, if we both wear masks the protection goes way up, you know? So if we're really inclusive, then maybe we should do more of that. Right. But, but we want to go back in person and we, it's what we know. Anything it goes to kind of what you talked about a little bit. People only see what they see. And instead of trying what I said in the other, in the earlier part of the podcast, where most people don't dig beneath the surface at all. So they only default back into whatever is easiest for them and, and what they know. And Mm -hmm. so they just want to go back to being whatever their version of normal is, but their version of normal excluded a lot of people. So, so not only are we in a pandemic still, but even if we weren't, you're excluding a lot of people. Now there's an interesting side point to that in poor people's campaign. I worked on an event that, was going to be hybrid that then went virtual and there was concerns because people in rural communities don't have access to the internet the way that I do. And so you have right. to remember that in that way, you're leaving some people out too, but maybe it's not an either or, right? Like maybe we should be building communities. However, we can build communities and you build yours and I'll build mine and we cross over where we can but the ultimate goal is for all of us to bring people into the circle. Yeah. Well, what strikes me about that too, is I'm thinking about, uh, did you see Midnight Mass on Netflix? I did not, but I will now. Now I want to see it. Oh, well, you tell me. (laughs) That makes me want to see it even more. Uh, We have a review of it. So if you do watch it, it's a horror film series uh but if you if you watch it then listen to that and then we could talk again uh but it's a it's set in this tiny little fishing village and there's a character who becomes disabled and the church builds her a ramp like they 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 make the space accessible for her there's also she has an arc that I, I would be interested to hear your thoughts on. But even in this tiny little fishing village where a big part of it is that like they've just sunk into poverty as laws have changed, as the situation has changed, they still like 
gather things together to make this ramp, to make things that were not previously accessible, accessible, because they have a relationship built with someone in the community. And I think, I think that's the piece that kind of ties all this together is that, um, when you know somebody who needs accommodations in some way, who needs you to make a space accessible, then you're going to do what you can to make that space accessible because you love someone. It's born out of that. And the challenge, I think, from making spaces accessible to keeping things online to increasing rural broadband access is that people don't have the people can't extend their imagination to, well, everybody who has the situation should be included. So we should be working broadly for this, not just on like a case by case basis. And, and I don't know how we get people to imagine that broadly without having them go through something like going from being not disabled to being disabled or, um, or having an awakening to racism in our country or any of these things. Like I, I, Part of what I struggle with when we talk about justice work is that I know people, when they're personally impacted by something, will work on something, but we need people who are not just personally impacted in order to make a big change. For sure. Yeah. Do you have any wisdom on on that that issue? Any thoughts about that? It's slow work. Like, that's the most frustrating thing, right? Like, if I wanted to build a church... Because I I'm good at bad theology too. I could use bad theology just as readily as you know. I could be I could be Darth Vader just as much as I could be Obi Wan. I know how theology works. So mm. the churches that are often growing are the ones that are exclusive. That are the church of I'm right and they're wrong kind of thing. Those are easy to build, right? So the the, the but the work that we do is slow. And that's incredibly frustrating. So I don't know if I have a good answer for you. It's it's slow. It's do what you can. We won't we won't complete the work, but that doesn't allow us to ignore it either, you know. And Ooh. and so just keep doing what you can. It's it's one person at a time, one life at a time. Now, do I wish we could do that in mass? Absolutely. So join together with other people because that makes a difference. The more people together, the more we can do. And it also involves justice. Like that, when you were talking like, that's the thing that I hear over and over again. One of the hard, one of the things that make our work the hardest is because the people doing the the work that are building the ramp already don't have enough and are just trying to make it through their day. So we need to look at the systemic issues that have like a widening gap between the rich and the rest and all the other things that need to change. And we need to say, we need to be together on those things too, because that's where we can really make a bigger change. Once things become more equitable by breaking down systems from the top down. And that's why love works from the outside in, as I've already mentioned, you know, um, but once we start breaking down those systems of exclusion, then we can do more because there's not going to be as much pressure on anyone's day-to-day life if things are more equitable all the way around. And that frees you up to do more work for more people. 
Yeah. I mean, it's that it's intersectionality, but also how how injustice is all woven together. If you pull on one thread, you are unraveling it all over because it, it is all meant to like uphold white cis hetero abled patriarchy, you know, like that's mm-hmm. it's how it's built. Um and oligarchy, etc. And so if you start pulling at any of that, it's going to unravel because it's not actually that. I mean, it feels strong now. It's not actually that strong. It's been woven. We can unweave it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's all a house of cards. They know that they, meaning they, the people at the top, and it can be the people at the top in the United Methodist Church. It can be the people at the top in the government. It can be like the rich versus the rest. The people at the top know that if the people at the bottom all got together, they wouldn't last very long. And that's why they work so hard to keep us from changing the systems so that they become more equitable. Yeah, you don't have to fight for something if it's not fragile. Yeah. Tell us about the Poor People's Campaign. This is going to come out on the 16th. I know the Poor People's Campaign is having a mass mobilization in DC. On the 18th. On the 18th. So tell us about the work that you've done with the Poor People's Campaign. If people want to get plugged in after they hear from you, how can they do that? Kind of give us give us the pitch. Talk to us about that and how it intersects with your work as a pastor. It is amazing. There's two things I'm really involved in right now. One is the Poor People's Campaign. So one of the things I really love about the Poor People's Campaign is that it's rooted in faith. Like it's grounded in faith and you know, mm-hmm. the original Poor People's Campaign started with the Civil Rights Movement and Martin Luther King and fired Rustin and all those awesome people of the day, you know, but that it's it's grounded in faith still, you know, um, and my work there, I'm, I'm involved in a few sites. Well, I'm actually the co-coordinator of the Buffalo Western New York region for Poor People's Campaign. So if you're up near me and want to find out more, hit me up or, um, you know, otherwise, you know, but I'm, I'm also on the care team, which is sort of like a lot of clergy and people like that so that you can be there kind of not providing counseling so much, but just listening to people like when they're, when they're struggling or when we're going through things. And that's so important because when you do justice work, you know, there's there's a lot of tension. You see a lot of people who are working actively against you and a lot of injustice. And uh-huh. so, and the other part that I really, really love um, is that I'm also involved in the arts and culture team here in New York State. And so I get to sing and write poetry and do all kinds of artistic sort of things that I that I do. And and there's the the moral march on Washington coming up on June 18th. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I'm not able to be there because uh, I I don't feel like I can safely be there with COVID and where my vaccine status is and stuff. I mean, a lot of things will be outside, so that's that's good, that's helpful, you know. But in my particular case, I didn't feel safe. But if you do feel safe, it's a great thing you can get there by just it's poorpeoplescampaign.org but whether it's for june 18th or after it's really about justice they're 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 Mm -hmm. fighting against racism and militarism and you know and 
economics and things like that. So if you recognize these things are problems, there's more that we can do together than we can do separately. And, Mm -hmm. and I found a great, a bunch of great and wonderful people doing things with poor people's campaign. That's great. Are they doing also virtual events on mm-hmm. the 18th? Can you watch it? Yeah, yeah they are doing a, a stream. Um, you know, last year, I think, was virtual entirely. This year, mm-hmm. they're doing a stream of it. I know because I've really, like, worked for it here in New York um, that a lot of events, like, we've really focused on hybrid so we could be as inclusive as possible. Um And I've had a lot of people, you know, one of the knocks on justice movement stuff is that people with disabilities still get left behind. A lot of people want to do stuff in person. And and for those of us who can't do things in person, whether it's because of COVID risk or just accessibility or economics or whatever it is that keeps us from being part of other things, you know, we're sort of left out. But I've had a lot of people really embrace, you know, doing hybrid versions of things and and things like that so they are streaming uh the 18th i'm not sure if there's going to be like some kind of hybrid interaction but even if it's not there you know i know that in the state and i know in other states too they really focus on accessibility and inclusion and things like that you know we might not be able to get everything the way we want it but we're working to get as much as the way we want it as we can Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I, I think that's so key is to notice that um, nobody's going to do everything perfectly. And we, I, especially on the left, we live in a time of like, oh, somebody said something wrong. That person was canceled and now their work doesn't matter. Um, what I find so great about the Poor People's Campaign is that it's built from regional levels from local levels statewide levels and then up to the national level and so even if there is um if there's a mistake a misstep if there's something lacking there's an ability to address it because you it's a connection all the Mm -hmm. way through so yeah yeah i'm excited i'm excited that you're doing work with them and i'm glad they're going to talk about this and i i would encourage other people to go look them up and and see how you can get involved again it's a way to kind of fight that um that hopelessness that can happen. Yeah. It's a, something to get plugged into. It really is from the ground up. And I mean, that's intentional. Like they often Mm -hmm. reference the 140 million, which is 140 million poor and low wage workers in the United States, like in the United States. Am I right? I don't, but a hundred, you know, but anyway, my big point is, is that there's more of us than there are of them. There's more people Mm -hmm. on the bottom Mm -hmm than there ever will be on the top. It's it's all one big pyramid scheme, you know? And so the so the poor people's campaign being rooted from the bottom, again, no no movement is gonna be perfect, but we're trying, don't as I often say, don't let what you can't do stop you from doing what you can. You know, mm. and and as long as people are trying that's what matters to me. I don't care if people get it perfect. I don't care, you know, if you use the wrong term sometimes or say something wrong or maybe do some wrong, something wrong or something's not as inclusive as it could be. I mean, those things are going to happen. But you go forward and, and with a willingness to learn and be open to do things better 
that's what I care about that, you know, because even I'm going to do things imperfectly and we, mm-hmm. we live here, right. We're all, we're all imperfect, right. Last time I checked. So <laughs> we're going to do things imperfectly, but hopefully it gets a little bit better each time that we do it, but we can only do that. And that's why you should bring up concerns because if you bring up mm-hmm. concerns, then you know, them. because again, you only see things in the way that, or understand things in the way that you understand them from your personal experience, you know, and together we all rise. Yeah. I think those are great words to go out on. Thank you again, Chris, for all this. Cause this is, this has been fun. We will definitely have to have you back because there's so much more to talk about, but Ethan, will you sign us off? I will. Friends, thanks for listening. This has been a mini sode of what the hell is a pastor? We are Spanx Reebok, the dude, and DJ Pastor Rock, and we will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples Podcast Network. Our theme song is written by Joe Schoenwolf, performed by Joe Schoenwolf, Ian Oriola, and Paul Oriola, and produced by Paul Oriola. Email us at wtheckisapastor at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash disruptivedisciples, on Twitter at WTHIAP, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash WTHIAP, where you can get access to Pillow Talk, merch, and some other stuff. Thanks for listening. And remember, friends, Ethan gave me all the money in his wallet. I'm the most informal person you'll ever meet. Perfect. I'm not high churchy or anything. (laughs) Please address me as the most reverend. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not disagreeing with you. (laughs) Spoken like a true elder.